everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tough Topics in LD Season 2. Um, Sean is here as ever. Sean, what's been um, new on the plate for you of late? Very, very busy um, finishing up, wrapping up my course, uh, going into practice. I'm currently on an elective where I'm off to working, so that's really, really nice. Uh, I've got no competencies to get signed off. I've got lots of coursework to do, but no competencies to get signed off. And yeah, um, really just looking forward to getting into practice now and enjoying things. Um, some some drama with some of the, the leadership and professional stuff I do. Um, but working through that and hopefully have some resolutions about that soon. So that's interesting times. Um, how about you? Well, yeah, I just want to sort of reflect on you quickly. Is just that you know, I I do remember that part of of training and you know that that coming to the end of your final year at university, and there is that sort of you know just want and desire to get it over the line, isn't there? But I think there's also that relief that you're nearly there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, keep going, mate. You'll um you'll absolutely smash it, I'm sure. All will end up working back at Amazon, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what you know jeff's done all right for himself working there so you know there's there's, there's hope for us all um for me we are at the college we are wrapping up looking towards the end of the academic year obviously we'll retain our clinical case later throughout the summer so we are looking at transition reports new students coming in trying to plan our staffing accordingly um covid is still affecting us and in spite of the upcoming um challenges uh, the upcoming uh, reduction in or relaxation in, in COVID regulations not much is going to change for us as part of a healthcare setting um within uh, my personal life unfortunately i've very sadly had a bereavement um recently my gran who is 99 passed away and we had to have a funeral so that was something that we had to deal with um and my daughter is about to turn seven madeline is is you know is an august baby so she's she's spent a lot of time looking online for blooming what she wants and you know, explain to her why she can't have something that's, you know, rated for 16-year-olds or these apps or why she can't have her own YouTube channel. Um, so, yeah, that's that's all the challenge of parenthood. Um, new puppies coming along well. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at with that. And you've got some merchandise. <laughs> I don't know about merch. That's what my daughter calls it because she's like, you've got a YouTube channel, so this is your merch. But, yes, I do have um, LD Physio, and I don't think I can get round to the back. Um Hoodies, I'm not sure if there's any, then maybe later on we'll look at, you know, if there's there's a desire for people to have these. This is really nice, actually. This is all reclaimed polyester and cotton as well. Um, so, plug, plug, you know, trying to be sustainable. Yeah, yeah, clang, clang, you know, trying to think about the environment and that. So, and, and it feels really nice, actually, as well. So, but yeah, today we are talking with Jack Chu, uh, trying to get his opinion on looking in from the outside. And we, we've just finished recording with him. And I think it went really, really well. Sean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it did. I mean, um, as you say, you know, it's 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 literally, you know, put 50 pence in Jack and, and let him go. So I'm glad we got a word in edgeways. But no, it's a very interesting talk. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, it gets quite deep in places, um, which sometimes we don't necessarily get. I think we do. I think we strive to be deep. Um, yeah. It tends to be me and you ranting at some point. But uh, no, it was it was it was very good. Uh, we, 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 you know, we discussed, you know, an outsider looking in and, you know, and it made me reflect on um, how others, others perceive us and actually where, you know, um, maybe we've internalized or I've internalized anyway, um, I'm a pes- I'm a pessimist by nature, as it is. But um, some of that negativity, it's nice to hear some positivity um, reflected back on us. It is, it was, is currently a- an interesting conversation. 
I think as 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 uh, which is raised while we discuss it, um, we don't necessarily see ourselves as specialists in learning disability. We might say, oh, we're specialists, you know, learning disability nurses or specialists. But in terms of specialism, we don't necessarily see it. So it's interesting to see that others from outside um, look in and go, yeah, that's quite specialist. That that is, you know, that's that's nice to hear. Interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, Jack is, is is not short of a word or two, um, which is one of the reasons that, you know, we think he'd be a really good guest. And, you know, as he turned out to be, um, you know, when we didn't hold back on any of the questions in this, you know, we went for, you know, some some pretty big, deep um, questions. So I think it's a really, really good podcast that you guys should tune into. Um, so without further ado, here is Jack Chu. Hi everybody, and we are joined here today, as mentioned, by uh, Jack Chu. Jack Chu is the director of MSKR of Chu's Health. He's the the, the brains behind Therapy Live, and and is an all round pusher of improvement and um, progression within musculoskeletal physiotherapy. He's very kindly agreed to join us today. And Jack, I probably missed off. A fair few things off your resume. I apologise. So feel free to fill us in and tell us a bit about yourself. For those who don't you who don't know about you, Jack of all trades. Um, yeah, the only thing missing, I guess, is that yeah, Therapy Live is part of the Physio Matters Project, probably which I'm best known uh, for talking on the internet, of which we're doing today. So thanks, thanks so much for having me. But no, you, you you got it right there. And I think those those are the jobs that I've done for now the longest time. Uh, my background though is. Um, I consider myself somewhat time served for a, for a while. I did 10 years in the NHS, moving through into advanced practice and I've witnessed all that that brings and, and, and developed a lot of my business and other uh, interests alongside that, which I recently and reluctantly had to leave um, because of you know, spinning too many plates um, and family commitments. So, yeah, but that's that's been a nutshell. You didn't miss much. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, today uh, our title is um, looking through the window, looking at, you know, from, from the outside, looking in. Um, mm. And we just it's it's around um, perceptions of other healthcare professionals and other areas of healthcare of the learning disability sector. Now, we're mindful, you know, if anybody who follows us, you know, know that Jack and I have, have engaged a few times and Sean, you, you know, we've engaged with Jack in the past. So, you know, we're mindful that Jack's perception of learning disability may be skewed. So, you know, full disclosure here, you know, I don't know if Jack has much engagement with other people in the learning disability sector. I'll feel free to Jack to, to, to engage with that um, and, and expand on that a little bit further. But Jack, you know, what, how do you see learning disabilities as a sector of healthcare? What's your perceptions of it? Where do you think it's good? Where do you think it's bad? Yeah, there's a, there's there's a lot there, and so you're going to need to make sure you do cut me off because um, it's a great question. I've had um, interesting engagements with um, people be- before you and since you, and and you know the the meeting of both of you has been central to the, my learning and, and development of it. So I think you're right. I'm not your typical layman on this topic, but also because of the very unique sort of position I have with, within. Know, what I do for a day job now it means that, that then I do that does color how I see things so I'm not going to pretend to be sat here as your typical clinician therefore giving their take on this matter but as you mentioned in the intro which is central to why various different projects have emerged um, around me or I've contributed to uh, as an independent is because I'm just 
the center of the bullseye for me is always raising standards in MSK practice. And the reason I'm bothered about that is because I think that it has a real key, it's a key component to public health, to education, to the general um, sequelae that could occur, both physical and mental health consequences of something as, as straightforward, supposedly as say back pain, arthritis and the like. So then when I pursue that and, and look at what, what, what might come from that, then you have these really interesting questions that can go transcend clinical into policy, such as how specialised should we be or how much of a competent generalist should we be? What do we do when the system sometimes drags us to being, sorry, to be so, so um, jargon-laden so quickly, but, you know, there's sometimes this utilitarian approach to almost what is the net good and therefore what, what edge cases or what more smaller niches get lost in it, right? So if you just general fund back pain and arthritis, then you miss things like LD, mental health, pelvic health, those sorts of what's considered subspecialisms. And if they're not appropriately nested, then this is a, a big issue. Now that's then comes to what I think is, is my, my central point as to what I am concerned about is I think that learning disabilities, when I look on at it, and it, even when I get great insights from the likes of you two, is that it just it, it really struggles to find its position and place as as something that is integrated, um, and therefore it gets, I think, wrongly. And I sense that you'd agree with this, both of you, but feel free to disagree with it. Is that because it ends up being considered so um, so separate, so specialised? that therefore it becomes this, this almost seems like barriers to understand for those that are more of a generalist persuasion clinically, but also a protectionism that seems to emerge sometimes from within it uh, because, because then um, there seems to be, because there's a, a just claim on specialism means that then sometimes it's implied that a, that a generalist wouldn't do or that, um, and, and then you know, a very understandable chip develops on the shoulder of that corner you know and i've witnessed it then and i can draw proxies to mental health pelvic health other um you know, hematology vascular conditions of, of, of which we as vmsk need to have uh, awareness of this improvements particularly on recognition on on diagnostics and, and and the advanced practice agenda has helped with that to some degree but then it's um one of the things that 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 is a, a fault of what I, of my, my critique of the, that entire part of the industry is that it stops short then of actually acting on that and it becomes just a signposting exercise which fuels the problem because if you just signpost or you know and you can't you, you're thinking categorically about this it's like you fit into this box therefore i'm going to refer you on to ld services it's just like when a, a reasonable adjustment would be would be far more appropriate in msk mainstream services it mortifies me because these I'm just, I feel like I'm watching a series of slow car crashes, all that look familiar. Like I'm just getting this weird deja vu across various different parts of it. And so I'm, I see LD and, and you're, you described it as like the, the LD discipline industry. I forget exactly how you said it, but I see it as being having some very similar challenges to other areas that, that, that are then making similar mistakes, but also in defense of it, um, being being pigeonholed and being uh, being left out of of, of of a more integrated conversation, I do want to make sure I, I declare what it is doing well though. Um, and and what what I've found is that clinically, when I have found myself then 
in more specialized cases where I am needing to say cry for help for want of a better term and to, to really seek expertise. Um, I, I, it's been challenging to find it sometimes, but when I've got it, I've been blown away. It, it, you know, the, 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 the detail that is able to be brought to bear, the collaborative, collaborative working when they've realized that I will reciprocate, when they've been like startled at the fact that I'm not saying, where can I refer this, this thing, this person, this case that, that I'm disembodying from its MSK problem because I'm hopeful that you'll just say yes and I can then absolve all my responsibility. When they realize I'm not that guy, I have had some really, really positive experiences, which makes me therefore heartened that with appropriate policy-related changes, as well as more integrated clinical education for us to do some of that nesting, for want of a better term, within mainstream services, that excites me for what could be. Whereas if I'd have encountered nothing but, say, hostility or poor reasoning or that the specialist saying all that, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be on this show or wouldn't be so passionate about why your project um, together and, and separately is one worth fighting because I, I would probably be a bit defeatist. So that's a definite upside that I think I hold on to and I'd encourage you guys to, uh, again, unless you disagree with it. <laughs> No, thanks. Uh, there's there's, there's a, a lot to, to unpick there, Jack. And one of the reasons we got you on here is that you are good with the words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not about good with them. I've got a lot of them. <laughs> quantity. I think. Go on, Sean. Sorry. No, she's saying quant quantity, not quality then, or quality, not quantity. I mean, definitely the quantity box, you think. I have to. I'm working on the quality, Sean, I promise. One of the things that you mentioned, uh, a number of things that you touched on there, I think um, you talked about the, the role of the competent generalist there. And and do you see that more as a, you know, we're going to talk about mainstream services and learning disability services that are separate. We know that they're not, they should be working as intertwined bodies. But this rise of, you know, you and I have talked at length about the phrase, the, the competent generalist. Um, and do you think that that is, you know, do you see learn disability as a specialism or do you see it as a role that would befall underneath the, the, the this this umbrella term of the competent generalist yeah i think um if you, it's one of them interesting thought experiments if you were developing everything from scratch you know if we mm -hmm. if, if, if everything was was built from the ground up and you were allowed to indulge sort of utopianism then you would you would think that that, that that's where I love that and we do that sometimes but then I know that that is different from the pragmatic so what do we do now type question so I would say that you would have a fairly it's a reasonable if it was done properly it would be reasonable to have a fairly sparse and somewhat real, you know realistic to what currently is um, highly specialized LD workforce that that, that is the center of their world as I speak to Two of my favourites in that space, as you know now, but just particularly people that, that have that extra knowledge and are, are, are up to date with the latest clinical and industry-wide policy machinations, right? You know, all those sorts of things that, that you just wouldn't, as a generalist, be able to stay across, you know? Um, and it would be unhealthy for people to try and pursue that and to, to, to try and know the detail. But someone needs to get across the detail. And I see that as not being dissimilar to, say, mental health like when it's psychopathology and when but, but as an msk clinician if you're not competent at dealing with lower grade I hate the term but you know your, your your depression anxieties of which are 
uh, on a spectrum and, and a continuum within within all of us, you know, in terms of but but, but almost pre pathology in a sense, you know, not schizophrenia, not not complex bipolar, for example, right? So again, problem of category here, I accept, but I'm just meaning that then in LD, I would say that you, you that, that you should have a better baseline competence amongst not just MSK but other healthcare staff as standard would mean that the current very sparse provision would then be able to do its specialist role more appropriately. Um, and, and, to, uh, and, and that, I think, actually is a, a, it could be an optimised system. Um, and, and the interesting tug of war between, um, you know, how, how many, how many uh, dedicated specialists, how much then in reach would they do, how much education, how much do we then manage to alter appropriate syllabus, undergraduate and otherwise, you know, how much can we get that into continued professional education um, is, is an interesting one. And that ratio would be fascinating sort of tug of war as I described it. But I think that that, uh, that that would be the balance and you should have more competent generalists, but then I still see a really important role for high-end specialists in that space. And I think without them, you're not going to get the competent generalists. You're not going to have them being able to, to have that, that, that point of contact. Is this a uh, would you is this you well uh, not unique possibly not unique to nursing but something which is uh, a feature of, of physiotherapy the fact that you um, you tend to do the same uh, you all tend to do a similar sort of undergraduate or pre registration uh, course follow a pathway and then specialise later because with nursing we sort of have our pre registration we we sort of enter the register at you know four different points if it were because we have all, all have you know we can uh, go on to different pre-registration courses so do you think that sort of affects possibly how you think about things because how i see um learning disability work uh, is that you know that, that, that there is considerable generalism in it uh, as opposed to specialism it's not very technical if it were uh, a lot of the time so i was wondering whether or not you think sort of the, the wearing the physio hat might um it definitely is. Um, I think it's a good point. I think what's been interesting um, about watching that professional development of of nursing, um, as as is different from MSK therapists generally, physios particularly, um, I think it's it's the the variety of of um, clinical duties that someone that might specialise in, in in LD is 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 a really fair point because it's there's so much variety within that that then is it reasonable to call that a specialism i have this conversation including yesterday on my live show about pediatrics or about adolescent care and things it's like well specialize in an age range you know that's a, that, that's ridiculous you know the variety that can occur there however there are really i would argue specialized features that, that occur to said age range right there are certain things that the developing body is affected by and that, as a baseline, is then can can influence your reasoning, regardless if it's neurorespiratory, MSK, sports, etc. And I feel that that's kind of what I'm getting at. I de it definitely does colour my opinions on this, Sean. It's a great point, but it's one that I still would stand by in the fact that even across nursing, there is something to be said for that that specialist insight on those features. 
even though there's variety around it. You know, there's this 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 base, especially on the comms level or on on the uh, the way in which the uh, not prognosis isn't the right word, but some of the time frame related factors and stuff that could get skewed is that, that, that some of the deeper insights that I've been able to get from both of you and others in your in your field means that um, I don't want you guys to then make underestimate just how how um, how deft that touch sometimes does need to be. So I hope that does answer your question. It's a good no, point. no, it does, and I think that you know that you sort of how you've concluded there uh, is quite revealing. You know, I don't think as uh, well, uh, learning disability practitioners necessarily see this, you know, the if it were those specialist um, knowledge or skills or features because it's it's really part of their everyday. I mean, that's the water in which you swim, isn't it? You're not going to notice it. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good point. But I, I don't, I don't want that to be underestimated because I've I've hugely valued that clinically, and and that's that's speaking as someone that I hope isn't. Uh, nearly as ignorant as I used to be on these issues, right? I, I'm someone that has tried to do some of the some of the work in that direction. Yet I still have found that 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 uh, is is more specialised than than you guys recognise for sure. For sure. What's interesting to see is um, uh, the sort of the difference between the nurse and the, and the physio undergraduate course. You know, um, and I think we've talked at length and and all particularly physiotherapy again. We go back to the fact that everyone wants to get their hands on the undergraduate course and make it 50 years long and everybody's a specialist and everything. <laughs> Um, but within nursing, we, we did a podcast, didn't we, Sean, called Proper Job um, with mm-hmm. Sam Abdullah, which was talking about uh, nursing. And actually, there's more of a, the, the people within nursing who sort to see the need to justify learning disability nursing as, as a profession or as a, as a job within itself. And, and this sort of, um, I don't know, potential perceived hierarchy within nursing of where what what is proper nursing and, and people clamoring for the for the um the the, the watch uh, the fob watch and people clamoring to, you know to be able to to do your obs and all that sort of stuff um and actually not necessarily understanding that the skills that we possess as specialists are are are, are, are just that they are specialisms um i think you know jack when um i've talked you know a few bits and bobs with you over the years and I think you know we've always talked about the fact that I think my take on it would be that an, in, an increased understanding of people with learning disabilities and the needs of people with learning disabilities would reduce the volume of people who are referred onto specialist services but it wouldn't eradicate the requirement for as you mentioned that that specialist because there are people who are incredibly complex whether that communicatively or whether that's a postural situation or whether it's you know multi multifactorial that will always require that support from the specialist. However, there is a good proportion of people with learning disabilities who can be seen within mainstream services within for reasonable adjustments. So, so Jack, what would why why isn't that happening? From in your opinion, why why are you know colleagues that we see getting referred patients you know with back pain who have Down syndrome, you know who's who's able to communicate um why why do is it is it a is it a volume thing you know with the waiting list as high as they are is you know this isn't something that's new to following the pandemic you know is it an attitudinal thing is it is it a lack of understanding competency what do you think easy as hell but i think one of the key reasons if i was to try and make it a sentence that it's not happening is because there are some really tough topics in ld right (laughs) i don't think for a second that 
some of the the challenges that you guys face and it fa- we face as a as a as a uh, as a society really is that we're really struggling to grapple with these sorts of topics we're just not we're not the public conversations far from mature enough the internal conversation the um, failure of, of, of both leadership and infrastructure within organizations and, and um, authorities that we used to be able to at least appeal to their infrastructure are sort of failing us and corruption's rife. It's a funny one because that matters, right? It's like, how do you initiate change? And, and, and it burns out those that are then infused within the system to do so. That's why, you know, you, you, despite trying to reform from within, you find me as a reformer from without is because of the fact that sometimes the bureaucracy stifles passion. And that is one of the big things. So why not? I can't help but go, go top, top level first there and say it's because communication breakdown is just happening at every level of analysis um, is, is to why that, you know, dark days I end up a bit pessimistic um, of it or... Um, my optimism is is on a profound rebuild. Now, I think, though, on the more specific clinical level, so I'm not going to dodge that, is that MS care clinicians, I think, um, in part because of some of the pressure, in part because of some of the disposition of, of trying to create a caseload of which most suits you and your individual passions and ambitions, means that sometimes people are then just cleaving off different parts of their caseload to try to then onward refer. Sometimes that's a, not a bad instinct because you signpost into better suited services. You know, there's some people that hold on to persistent pain uh, patients for, for too long because it might suit their needs or their services are, are, are set up that way when really there's someone that, uh, not, not, not far away uh, that, that has a more, uh, is more equipped uh, to deal with that, that caseload. You know, it's an appropriate signposting process. This, this people that that particularly love, physios that particularly love foot and ankle work when there's a highly specialised podiatrist next door twiddling their thumbs that that really should be and it should be integrated within a normal service. But when if it is a different service, technically it needs an onward referral. Then then make that call. And then there are some therapists that are purposefully being like, oh, it's a foot. Is there an angle for me to refer it to? podiatry oh it's a hand can i refer that to a hand specialist ot oh they've got down syndrome great it fits that box that's how mm-hmm. narrow a categorical thinker i am for me for a second not putting that into direct category right you've not got a reason i want to just stop myself is because you 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 struggle to find an anti-foot bigotry in the world but there are people that are then just overly judgmental and, and bigoted against say someone with down syndrome to the fact that that then is, is coloring their judgment prejudicially about that person so that's one of the reasons why they're palming that off however there are people that aren't doing that that are, that are coming at it in, in in an appropriately compassionate manner but just perceiving themselves through their lack of knowledge that they would be underqualified compared to their ld colleagues and therefore are thinking that that's a good a good signpost, not recognizing that then sitting them onto a 16 week waiting list um, is, is, is incredibly poor care. They've just not necessarily thought it through. So I always wanted to make sure I offered that distinction because those are two um, interlinking, but, but still to solve them would be, would be you need to tease them apart. And I think that that process, both in, in terms of physical body parts, as well as then other, you know, this, dep- this depression, for example, is, is now, so affecting their care that it's now causal to this problem or it's the i'm considering it the biggest fish to fry therefore i'm going to refer to mental health services rather than do an integrated you know it's it's 
some people just um, are trying to, to trim their caseload. And there's various reasons that people argue. It's funny because why do people do that? And it's like, well, what you, you then end up in a study of human nature. We're complex status hungry monkeys, right? You just talked about fob watches and obs. And yeah, I know this across professions, right? Is that you've sometimes got this ongoing thing about, about what it is in terms of status and title and, and, and why are people behaving that way it becomes a very profound conversation. Again, a conversation as a society we're really struggling with. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to give a, a classically waffly answer, but as ever, these things are complex. Why is it happening? It's complex. How can we correct it? It's complex. And the only way through that is to, uh, is to at least be honest. And I think that's one of the things we're all struggling with. You know, the present company excluded, of course. I think um, I think it's complex and it depends on the two favourite sort of <laughs> yes. of, of yes. the modern professional, aren't they? The stock mm. answer to anything. Um, <clears throat> do you think, and, and Sean, feel free to, to jump in on this as well, um, that the increased reliance on social care relative to the general population has an impact on the perception of complexity with an individual so you know because they're drawing on social care do we go oh bloody hell that's you know our mainstream clinicians or physios and other professions used to dealing with different agencies or is that you know do we see that as oh my god i haven't got time for that you know i've, I've got my clinic of 20 minutes 15 minutes whatever you know and is there capacity within that and you know does that affect either consciously or unconsciously our, our decision making when it comes to people with learning disabilities it does um and it, it sometimes does and it shouldn't but then there's other areas where it's that, that is a classic systemic problem in a sense that, that you've got msk clinicians that we are we can, there is a we can become complacent on the fact that most people are able to turn up on time without fail sit in a waiting room that's that's until recently um, cramped the um the process of them then being able to go and walk from albeit with a bit of a limp or sometimes occasionally on crutches but they walk from there to a department that has curtains rather than walls that then it's appropriate to have that conversation there isn't a lot of space in there so you're hoping that they either don't come with a family member or a carer never mind so you're just hoping that it's a one-to-one -one conversation within a time frame that's increasingly getting shorter so this is the thing that there is these these structural um conveyor belt like features that make for individualized and personalized care challenging anyway that affects all care so when you then add some of the the um features that you've described whereby inevitably you've got this um this this feature and, and integration with social care you've also then got the, the msk clinicians it's it's a funny one like i've had a lot of students recently and it's just that all of their documentation is talking about mdt mdt and and of course that is the answer but rarely in msk yeah, there's an MSK MDT, but it's rarely a truly integrated body, right? So you, you are fairly solo in many circumstances, and that's okay. But that's one of the things that spooks, because we're not used to it. Your MSK clinician, 90% plus of the time, is, is a bit of an island, and it's not necessarily their fault, or it doesn't necessarily matter. They're okay. They are the most qualified person to be treating that and managing that case sometimes through. But when it's not, such as the circumstances you're describing, especially when it then becomes a social care colleague rather than a health professional colleague, which, which sometimes has its comms challenges and, 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 and jargon and the language shifts and stuff like that, it does sometimes spook people. And it's another reason for them to be skittish and then just try and palm it off. 
and and as I say, I'm trying to describe some things that I do. There are things within that I don't excuse, and things within that I'm passionate about reforming. But there's also things in there that I can comprehend how it happens because I've been there, mm-hmm. and there's been times where I've, I've, I've if, as if it, metaphorical on this, if it, as if it was a big referral button, but you've you found even me cramped list hovering over that button when I shouldn't have been. And, uh, and I get some of those, those phenomena as well. Uh-huh. I think um, there's a sort of awkwardness when it comes to people being supported by uh, social care, people, you know, uh, in those settings. Um, and we can see it in other areas. I mean, if we look at older adults, people with dementia tends to be very, very awkward with, um, how uh, healthcare professionals interact with them. Interestingly mm. enough, if you look at the literature, it tends it, it, it indicates that, for instance, let's say annual health checks, people that are supported by social care tend to be able to tend to attend them more than 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 with family members. Um, but that's possibly to do with the fact that when they do have familiar carriers, they are looked after better, and it's not a tick box exercise. So, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's complex. We'll use that word again. <laughs> yeah, well, I think one of the things is because, you know, we're, we're right to notice and catch ourselves doing it, because I think sometimes that is, in all conversations, um, sometimes a bit of a cop out. So oh, it's more complicated than that. And then they don't follow up. <laughs> I hope we're trying to admit to the complexity, but also then trying to, 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 to take ourselves through it. Uh, because you know it's it's fascinating and obviously this is the sort of thing that I don't know and I'm not close enough to that evidence base. So it's it's interesting mm-hmm. that some of that plays out. But what you've just described there with regards to dementia care is, is, a, is a very good uh, analogy, and I can see the the comparison. And we there's some things that you can't. It's why I always talk about distributed responsibility. My now think tank uh, MSK reform. Uh, its original origin was called the Big R's, and the Big R's were reasoning, responsibility, and reform reasoning kind of speaks for itself reform is then an outcome that we've then pursued responsibility was was about how can you we always said it was sort of central to the premise of change in policy that you need to distribute responsibility from therapists themselves to upskill to their services to be able to support that educational process as well as provide the parameters for them to thrive as therapists and clinicians but then you also have these wider issues with regards to then the health system, governmental policy. Then you also had this sort of social and cultural feature as to what is it that we might expect of it. And uh, as you guys have you know, spoken to brilliantly on this podcast and some of the, my favourite episodes of your show is where you start to talk about the fact that some of the misnomers in and around, say, reasonable adjustment, or if there was two, you know, and, and I think one of the toughest challenges that... that uh, that it faces that I don't think your industry always does very well is to try to help to bridge a gap in understanding what a reasonable adjustment might be. And I think that, that those sorts of, those sorts of uh, understandings will, will go a long way. If we, could, if we could move the needle on something, that would unlock a lot more access and opportunity. And if we don't all find a way to take our own part of that responsibility, but also not point fingers and have our own favorite stakeholder group that's meant to shoulder all the responsibility. You know, I always talk about, and it, it gets me into to, to, to trouble as a, as a semi-political animal, but um, you know, some people have their favorite places to shake their fist and, and I'm sympathetic to that, but I don't think it's, uh, it's wise. You know, I think that it should be distributed and I think I try and make a case for why. And I think we, we all need to try and pick up that baton where we can. So, so turning towards you mentioned about um, the uh, 
sort of put money, money by your mouth situation, you know, what is, a, you know, so we talk about you need to give people reasonable adjustments, you know, what's a practical example of that, you know, and I think that that alludes to a point that you made earlier on about, you know, we're, we're good at signposting, but not just necessarily good as an area of healthcare in acting and, and the doing side of things. We're good at the shouting. Um, what, how do you think we can transition or, you know, what things would you want from a, you know, if you're engaging with learning disabilities as a sector, what, what, what could we do as an area of healthcare to support mainstream clinicians in their understanding? You alluded to the reasonable adjustments and what's a practical example. Mm-hmm. What other steps could we take? Yeah, I think, I think you, you, you're, you're shy of good options, I think, on this because of all the time pressures and the fact that everyone's just feeling like you described like um, the risk of everyone thinking it needs to be a 50-year degree because everyone wants a piece of the syllabus. Um, and then everyone that's in practice is frustrated about just how many yeah of course it's a good idea for in-service training but join the queue you know everyone's feeling like that and everyone feels like these are almost bolt-ons to their practice rather than true foundational integrated um, things that should color their reasoning if they were being more thoughtful about it right so it's a challenge to get there so i think you're stuck for good options and i think you should double down on case studies and um, using using those sorts of examples. Try and take low-hanging fruit clinical examples from MSK so that they're really translatable. You know, if, you're, if your story is about a niche pathology of the shoulder, probably not wise. You know, it's like this, this particular LD case had a, a popliteal aneurysm that got missed. It's probably too niche a clinical case. So you should, you know, in an ideal world, that you, people should be like fascinated by that niche edge case. But I'm just meaning that to then say here's a run-of-the-mill msk condition that happened to be in someone that had uh, cp and other than the sequel of that being ld related features it's like what using that as, a, as an example and 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 being being confident enough to not need a tangible and specific case of which you could name if pressed it's almost like you know allow you allow yourself to some degree to to um to create a classic case um, that can help to to educate and then to be brave enough to, to explain as to where, where um, this is where a, a, a reasonable adjustment would not have been made. You know, here's, here's an example of it, of it being done badly by people trying to just um, put a square peg in a round hole within a service and, and not making sensible and reasonable adjustment. But then also, I think a, a particularly uh, handy thing that I sometimes don't see enough of as well is then to accept and understand as to what would be an excessive expectation in that direction, um, which I know is uh, even me saying that I've got into trouble before uh, because you know, what, what is it? What is it? Ex- there's no such thing as excessive. You know, I've got into it, both in my personal and professional life, ended up in some really quite difficult conversations that haven't ended well. I've not been able to bring them back around over something like that because even me suggesting that someone could do or expect too much. It's like, well, what is too much? You know, it's not. And 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 that's where that pragmatic conversation sometimes breaks down. And I think that if you guys and as an industry were able to create case studies that also allowed for those, you know, it, were, were brave enough to have those parts of the conversation, I think it would help me and my MSK colleagues as well as wider healthcare professionals perhaps to then think, ah, they're ex- they, they, there's, a, there's a real understanding of some of the reasonable challenges that we're facing as well. Um, of which I know, again, from YouTube, that there's, that there's no shortage of that empathy. But I just think that that's where um, it, to hear it would be helpful. Slight side point and, and broader point. Do you think um, others, if we were going to say, use the term mainstream uh, uh, practitioners, 
have to sort of meet us halfway on that. You mentioned case studies. Now, there's a there's a lots lots of misconceptions around evidence based practice, and you know there's a rush for uh, systematic reviews and all this sort of stuff, and focus on those. And you know, our sort of lower order down the hierarchy of evidence tends to get sort of sidelined, and that's where we normally find the case studies. So, do you think um, if it were mainstream practitioners, have got to meet us halfway on that? Absolutely, they do. I think one of the things we need to understand as well is that your majority of clinicians haven't taken the um, empirical pill, really. You know, it's like, I think that's something that gets those of us that are particularly thoughtful and, and, and are nerds to the evidence to some degree and, and are, are, are chomping through papers in our spare time or applying, as, as, as is my job, to try and translate that to the masses through entertaining education on the internet. You know, we... we we end up overexposed compared to most people to that sort of material, to the to the dense and somewhat academic material. Um, I think that that you'd be hopeful. I think I'm hopeful in many ways that that scientism, that scientism or whatever it gets called, where you kind of get this over empirical um, aspiring to, if it's, if it's not in a nice guideline, I'm not doing it style approach to practice that would really not be. Um, appropriate for, uh, for especially for some disciplines of which that evidence is, is sparse at that high end I think as clinicians uh, I, I don't think there'd be that that barrier as much now you do and is it that I always say that your, your academics and your policymakers they're always the ones that are sat at a desk because they're not seeing patients so much these days and I'm not even calling them for that because some of the best best minds in the country are, uh, are not, happen to not be seeing patients it's not a problem and I'd be a hypocrite you know I see far fewer patients than I ever used to um, but it's it's more what I'm describing there is that the challenges that sometimes get made to yeah but it's a case study and how high quality is that evidence type thing they are, they are made from the people that aren't necessarily the ones that you're trying to change. Or there are a vocal minority of clinicians that are being quite dogmatic about the fact that they want it choked up in an RCT. And so they definitely need to meet you halfway, Sean. It's a great point. But it's one that I, who is meeting you halfway? I don't think you'd need the, the clinicians. I think they'd meet you further than halfway. I think they'd be craving that sort of material. And also it's to make sure that, that we couch those case studies in not an implication that they are hard evidence in, a, in any sense or that they are blinded or controlled for that they need to be taken with an appropriate pinch of salt but it's more to help pennies drop a lot of your your work from what i see it, it speaks to me so powerfully because it's so entrepreneurial you're solving problems individualized problems you're creating really interesting bespoke solutions for and it gets my juices flowing even as a clinician to say, oh, that's a really clever way around that or to you know to, to integrate their rehabilitation within that particular be that uh, interest of theirs or or, or game or or task that men, they put their body in that interesting position that they were otherwise avoiding i absolutely love that stuff and it, it takes for case studies to sometimes help those pennies to drop rather than it being almost like here's a flavor of evidence to try to persuade you it's more that then it just speaks to their clinical examples and i think that 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 balance would would mean that yeah you you, you would be met halfway i think with open arms i hope i think um you know i often use use the phrase that within learning disabilities we've we've sort of given up on research relating to how we keep people alive and we try to learn how people die you know and it's it is quite macabre um but you know the leading project um is is a great evidence of how we're trying to sort of pick up the pieces afterwards um and and you know, my big bias is that you know we have a, there's a lot of tools that we can provide for people with learning disabilities um as a preventative measure 
um, you know, and I just think about, you know, all, all of these, this, this discussion that we're having around reasonable adjustments and practical examples, how, this is the big one for me, is how do, how do we stop, and this is something you were going to say it's complex and it depends on its human nature, how do we stop these, these huge cases? So, you know, I talked about yesterday of a man who um, was, had sats of 35% Ben King who died um, was left for five hours without any obs and then was also struck by two staff on the morning that he died. I could think of a gentleman who died in a bath who had epilepsy. I could think of a, a lady who was um, admitted to hospital and she died because she wasn't given any nutritional supplements for six weeks. She starved to death in a hospital setting. Um, I could think of you know, situations where you know people were given medication that it was clearly stated they were allergic to. How... You know, if you can solve this, Jack, you know, I'll give you a lot of money. Um, how, how do we stop that? What What do you think is that? Is it attitudinal? Is it neglect? Is it resource? Is it people just being twats? Is it a mixture of all of that? You can say it depends. It's complex. <laughs> I'm going to purposely not say it depends on it's complex, even though it does and both of those things. I'm going to not <laughs> dodge it like that. It's. Um, I think one of the things, though, I am going to admit it's kind of why I answered one of your earlier questions with such a big picture sort of overly philosophical, hmm. you know, um, point is because I think that is a combination of the things you've just described. Let's just take the low hanging fruit first is that there's some people and it's bizarre that they're ending up in healthcare, which is a fascinating thing in many ways. Um, there are answers to that as to why they do, but there are some people are twats and they are bigots and they are instinctively dehumanizing these patients. And it's, it's, it's horrible, but they're amongst us. That's not an educational need. That's a completely rational acceptance of the fact that we have a spectrum of personalities within, within the world as humans, right? Again, you know, complex and rather smart monkeys as we are, there's, there's something that then there's just, we know there are evolved differences in us and that we didn't uh, evolve from the neck down, right? This cognitive processing that varies amongst us. That's not just a, you know, that's, I am, I am that guy. I'm not a blank slatist. I'm someone that, that is always fascinated by the tug of war between nature and nurture and their influences on each other. Right? That's a, a complexity feature. I said, I won't use the word, but I have. So, so that's on one level is that you, of course, you've got them and, and then everything between that and a systemic thing of which you struggle to ascribe any fault at all to the individual. Right. And then you've got everything in between. Right? So you've got someone that's just a criminal, criminal and, and, and somewhat psychopathic behaviors or at least sociopathic behaviors where they've uncoupled themselves so far from empathy. Some reason dehumanize this person that's otherwise got other, a, a disability of any sort. Uh, and then you've got this, this, otherwise really compassionate well-meaning and, and someone that doing their best within a system that is so bad that they they've even ended up making those mistakes or or, or let, let's i think you're torturing logic a bit to get this far but some would argue that even the people that struck that person it, it's 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 all system it's all systemic all the way down right you can't some people argue that you can't even attribute any responsibility to those that literally punched another otherwise soon to die a uh, human being of which I, I read and watched your stuff there yesterday, Alistair, and it mortified me. But it's kind of that, again, who is reviewing this, right? Is it, so if you're trying to solve that, you're solving a complex ideological and somewhat political problem. 
is that the distribution of responsibility is one of the most, and I know because I weighed in on it by name in recent years, is that you've got some people that over, over ascribe responsibility to individuals and then ignore system-wide problems. And then you've got some people that, that, that divorce all personal responsibility and simply shake their fist upwards somewhat to, to, um, to say, governmental structures. But even beyond that, it's almost like it, that, that nothing beyond cosmic justice uh, is, is, is worth responsibility and that it's all fate. And, um, and that's a complex philosophical problem too. So I think I would argue that the, the best way to, to, to do that as ever, and, and a cliche from me and, and one that I best argument against everything I do is that I put too much faith in conversation and, and, and too much faith in dialogue and that, that people somewhat rightly think that that's naive. But I see no better option than for us to at least get all the cards on the table, an analogy I overuse, and to say, these are all things that are happening. Let's get the, the, the morons out of it, the, the, the people that need to certainly be away from patient-facing care. Let's try and clear ourselves up to create systems that can then better capture that. Yes, make the system more robust, but then also think about some of the reasons that we as humans in, employed to do a task of care may well end up in a circumstance. What are the phenomena that are making those people potentially then fail to act and, and be honest with each other and ourselves about the fact that there are many levels of that analysis and that I don't care if it doesn't suit your political persuasion, your ideology, if, if the logic and evidence points towards it to some degree that there is a there are parts of that that might contribute to it then we're having that conversation tough look and we're not bothered if it bothers you if it offends you and things like that right there's just a, an element of bravery that we need to have in that conversation which makes it a tough topic so uh, again I'm, I'm sorry if it's a non-answer but but that for me uh, i do i do hope we can do i, I don't think it's a non-answer at all jack and i think um you've alluded to in a lot of points which I think both Sean and I understand and relate to um it's yeah it, it is a challenge and, and, I, and I sort of see that you know my sort of raison d'etre around you know the LD physio and all that side of things is to try and I want physiotherapy and again this so this has been sorry nurses paying attention this has been very physiotherapy centric but you know you got me and Jack and Jack's a big mouth and you know I, I like to the sound of my voice too <laughs> yeah, sorry Sean. Um, so sorry Sean if you've marginalized on this um but, you know, I, I think physiotherapy can be a bastion of preventative healthcare for people to learn disabilities. I see that we have the tools and skills to be able to support people. And I think if we can take the care of people with learning disabilities and reflect in the right way of, of timely referral when it's required, but also integration within mainstream services, I think, you know, we, we, we can then start to create case studies and and more evidence to show that that model works and then there that physiotherapists take these people as people um yes disabled people and people with disabilities um but but people all the same and then we can be the the profession that starts the the reduction in dehumanizing behavior that when you see somebody with a learning disability you don't automatically go referral on don't know what that person's going on. okay let's let's see this person let's triage this person let's give this person the same credit and due diligence that we would with any other patient that, and, and I saw going through. Sorry, yeah, and that's something I wanted to come into, and I did want to uh, break Jack in in flow. And I, I, although I just have you, and I think you, you, that's a really good point. You know, um, physios do have a role in it. You know, somebody has to take that 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 leadership role. 
in it, you know, on, on the ground, if it were. So, yeah. You... I think one thing before we start to wrap this up, um, I should mention is that some caveat is that I know people within within learning disabilities don't necessarily like the phrase learning disability sector or area or you know mm. referencing learning disabilities as though it is a separate entity versus mainstream look we were just trying to dis create a distinction for frame of reference people um we, sean i and jack are, are not people uh, hopefully that's coming through that you know want to other people and want to you know to, to create more barriers than there already are but it's just it helps us to create a frame of reference that is understandable to the layperson. Um, or people within musculoskeletal or, or you know, mainstream practice. So, you know, that's that's kind of why we've had to use these frames of references. In terms of references, um, hopefully that hasn't upset anybody too much, but if it has, then, you know, look at the bigger picture. There's, there's, there's bigger fish to fry people. That's one of the things that, that I end up, um, and I have, I have some sympathy for, but then when appropriate caveats such as you've just described are, are employed, I see that if, if that's not enough, then I always think that that's one of the things that's degrading the public conversation and making a lot of this even tougher. Um, and, and so the, the tightrope that, uh, that everyone is expected to walk is fascinating. And, 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 and a final point on that is that if, when yesterday I saw this in my diary and thought, well, what is it that I feel like I want to make sure that, well, what would I suggest to you guys to get these topics to garner the attention they deserve and so desperately need. Um, I think one of the big challenges that you need to overcome is that it is incredibly trendy in good and bad ways at the moment to be an activist of sorts and that therefore the ability to garner attention, and I say that as an attention seeker and somewhat a, saint, a successful one in many ways for certain causes I've been able to champion, is that, um, is that to, to do so is to try to find a balance between appropriately garnering empathy for people to recognize that there is um, a real um, a real suffering that's occurring under under mismanagement misguidance and, and poor education in this space but then simultaneously then bring in a somewhat data-centric rational analysis to that as well you know balancing the subjective with the objective uh, whereas there are so many uh, that are fairly, and the access for you would be to, to, to balance that because so many aren't. So many are simply dining out on, say, subjective lived experience or thinking that they can use data as a ramrod and that's going to somehow move people. And I think that's just ignorant to human behaviour, change agency. Um, and I think if you can find that sweet spot of which, you know, I'd, I'd have told you before now if I didn't think you were doing, but she's trying to keep a handle on both of those things and integrating them together to, to, to vie for change and the persistence and, and productivity that you're showing, um, it w will come good. And, you know, I hope you, you know that you have me and mine uh, as, as friends in that, in that way. You know, I think we, we know we need to take your, take your lead on it. Uh, but, but, you know, as far as any megaphones we own, uh, we will point them in the direction that you need us to at whatever appropriate times. Thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. And Jack, if anybody wants to, sorry, before I do that, Sean, is there anything else you wanted to sort of make any points or, or you know, quiz Mr. Chu while he's here? Any more, you know, what, what is the meaning of life? Any sort of big, you know, philosophical big, questions? Big philosophical <laughs> questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, no, no not really I just I just think it's it, it's been interesting listening to you both I've got to say because uh, you know uh, you referenced it, it's it's all about the MDT but you know it, it's important to remember that there are professional distinctions and we don't necessarily have that crossover and it's a different culture um 
you know, different areas of practice, different knowledge, different models, different theories that inform it. So it is quite interesting to to listen to. Um, yeah. So so thanks for thanks for allowing me to uh, to to uh, be here today. <laughs> I want to say the same. No, I, I think what, one of the things that's great about the balance with with your two's work together and then distinctly is, is that there are there are some distinctions that are relevant, and then there's some overlaps that we should make more, and 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 that that's another another balancing act. We keep talking that we're saying balance as much as we're saying complex now, aren't we? But I think that um, what is there of what is there of, of, of therapies that, uh, that that nursing would benefit from from learning for structurally and clinically, and then vice versa. I don't know how much of the educational reforms and changes that have occurred in nursing, as we've talked about with regards to subspecialism, how much of that is for the is for the good, and we should adopt, and how much is a lesson learned for us to not make that mistake, you know, and and. What, how on earth do we get there without conversations like this? I, I just don't know, but, but increasingly they're just not happening. So um, fair, fair play for you guys having them. And, and thanks for having me today. It's been, it's been a pleasure and, uh, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you so much, Jack. And, um, you know, you have been a great support when you've you know, been, as you mentioned, about pointing megaphones in our direction. You've given us time to speak me personally on, on Therapy Live and, and on your Chewing It Overs as well as the PhysioMatters podcast. So, you know, I, we really do appreciate the support that you give them. We, we definitely believe that it's not just a virtue signal and token gestinistic nature. You know, you are genuinely behind this, um, not least due to your own clinical placement background. You know, you worked in a, you know, we should say that as well. You spent some time in a special education setting. Um, in the SEND school um, as part of your placement, which I think, you know, would also give you a bit more of a behind the curtains look at, you know, the needs of people with learning disabilities. And it's nice that you're able to bring that to bear here. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, Jack, where can they find you? I mean, everywhere, really. The internet. <laughs> you, you One of the real benefits of having a novel name uh, is, is that I'm rather easily Googleable. Um, so wherever you fancy finding me or wherever suits you, you might do. I'm not edgy enough to be on Instagram and TikTok and, and, and the like. Um, but yeah, Twitter's usually where I, I'm easiest to find publicly for social media on professional issues at Jack A. Chu. And then the, the main most important thing for me, would you be to follow our projects of which are run by a, a more competent team than I am at, uh, at Physio Matters and Therapy Live and MSK Reform, which all have really straightforward handles and are easy again to find if you Google them. Jack, thank you ever so much for your time, your thoughts and your wisdom. And Sean, thanks as ever, as always. And we will see you all again very soon. Take care, everyone. Yeah, Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.